Welcome to Rise, the United Independent Podcast. Together, we are rising above the fear and division of our current political landscape towards a civic culture of unity, care, and effective stewardship for the places we call home. On today's episode, I am joined by my friend, author, and activist, Charles Eisenstein. For a very long time, Charles has been contributing his voice to speak on behalf of the earth and on behalf of the more beautiful world that each of us knows in our heart is possible. Charles actually coined that phrase and it has been so useful and instrumental in my own thinking because it's not about fixing or saving the world. It's about making a world that's more beautiful that we can leave behind to our children and grandchildren. And as you'll see in this episode, Charles has really been through it in the last few years. He brought a particular perspective during the pandemic that was trying to point us towards some of the deeper psychological currents that were coming up to the surface through that collective experience. And as a result, Charles was canceled. He lost his publisher and a large portion of his audience. So for some folks, that might make him a hero. And for other folks, that might make him a villain which is something that we talk about extensively in this episode. So whatever you think you know about Charles Eisenstein, I would invite you to listen to this episode and really bring your open heart. No one's trying to convince you of anything or manipulate you, but I have a sense that his voice is really important to this movement and that that desire to cancel someone, to push someone out is a big part of what we get to do differently as an independent movement where even when we disagree with someone, we can take the time to sit down and have a deep, meaningful conversation. And that's really what this conversation is. It's one of the most powerful conversations I've recorded on this podcast so far. And it really speaks to the heart of what this movement is about and the true meaning of independence. Please enjoy this episode with my friend and colleague, Charles Eisenstein. I feel really honored to be joined this morning by my friend, Charles Eisenstein. Thank you, Charles. Good morning, Benjamin. Very happy to be here with you. You and I have, have gotten to know each other a little bit over the last few months. We were at a gathering called Emerge together, and then I had the real blessing of getting to meet you in a collaborative context around a creative project that you're working on in, in the midst of right now. and. And then you came to visit my house briefly for dinner. And it's been this very surreal experience because I have known you as a, as a writer and as a thinker. And, and so it's been a real pleasure to get to know you as a human being. And your work really came into the spotlight in a new way during the pandemic. And the way that you were writing about the pandemic was very inspiring to me because it felt like you were touching some of the deeper psychological and mythopoetic like narrative pieces around the way that the stories we tell collectively inform our culture and our politics. And so I maybe wanted to start there in terms of some of the myths that currently define our political landscape. There's like the myth of progress that we're always headed towards some technologically enabled future where things will get better and easier over time. There's also this kind of 
infantilizing mythology about power over and the way that we look to people in authority for what we should believe and and that some sort of parental figure they'll come in and save us and a big part of what i believe the independent movement can represent and stand for is a kind of maturation process of the individual to refine the the basis of power in the in the self and then in the collective again and so i wanted to just start at the level of of the stories that you feel are are defining our current political landscape and then what are the kind of transformations that you feel are necessary at a cultural level in order to create the next version of democracy or the next experiment of self-governance? Okay, so that, 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 that is a very broad question. I could probably talk for an, an hour just about that. And maybe I'll just circle around the territory a little bit by talking about independent. What does that actually mean? What are we talking about? The go-to understanding would be something like independent of the two existing parties. But there's level after level after level about what independence really means. What is it to be independent? And what is it to be interdependent? Like how independent do we want to be? And then the question is independent of what? So you mentioned these these cultural stories. Like these are far deeper than the way that they manifest in one political party or another. So you mentioned the story of progress, like this kind of default assumption that humanity is ascending above our primitive superstitious origins and that things are getting better and better and that we know how to do it and that we know how to make the world better and better. And maybe there are some hiccups along the way, but the basic program of progress through control is has at least until recently been largely unquestioned. So that's one of the myths that I'm talking about. And, and so during the pandemic, you can see how that, that myth informed the public health response. It was almost a relief to have a public health crisis where there was something you could easily identify as an object of control. Like we knew what to do. So of course, like all of this machinery went into place. All of the policies were one form of control or another. Controlling a virus, controlling people, tracking, surveilling, censoring, like all of those were various forms of control. And, and so that, that occurred naturally to people, it seemed, of course, because of that deeper mythology. In, in the highly partisan environment that developed very quickly around COVID. Like at the very beginning, my essay, The Coronation, it, it spread widely, like millions of people read it. It was very, it, it hadn't, it wasn't offensive yet because the polarized camps had not yet differentiated. So people were able to read it without looking at it through the lens of, oh, which side is he on? Very quickly, as we know, COVID it in, it distilled or or intensified latent divisions in society that have been intensifying over pretty much my entire lifetime but but covid really provided an opportunity for them to reach unprecedentedly militant proportions 
And after that, it became very hard for me to say anything that I wanted to say because the lens of which side is he on was applied very, very quickly. And because I'm not saying something that's easily identifiable, at least with the mainstream side, I became a heretic. But now, because what I'm saying actually isn't a partisan position paper for the dissident side either, now like I'm a suspect character there too, which, which demonstrates to me all the more the need to look deeply at what makes us so susceptible to this us versus them division. That's what real independence would be, where we are no longer susceptible to divide and conquer tactics. We are independent of needing to derive our identity from our opinions, from our political affiliations. And of course, we can have alliances, and of course, we have opinions. I'm not saying we, we, we release all opinion, but to, to depend on that as a source of identity will make us susceptible to, to, to only be able to know ourselves as good and valid people through joining an opinion tribe. That is a kind of dependency, a very unhealthy kind of dependency. And that, to me, is if, if we can become independent of that, then we will be coherent as a people because we will, because in fact, all of these divisions, 90% are artificial. Actually, human beings are, are in general agreement over basic values. And so somehow like this general moral instinct that we all share has been manipulated to pit us against each other. So yeah, I'll start with that conception of an independent. This episode of Rise is brought to you by the second Independent National Convention, happening October 29th and 30th, 2022 in Austin, Texas. INC22 is bringing together leaders from across the independent sector to establish a vision for national transformation into good governance and your role in it. If you're interested in or passionate about moving America forward beyond our current divisiveness, rising as one independent nation for government that is truly of, by, and for the people, we think you should be there. Go to www.inc22.us to register for in-person attendance or get a link to the live stream and share the vision of an independent America with your friends. We look forward to seeing you in Austin or online as we let the world know that American independents are uniting and working together to create a more beautiful world. Thank you for bringing us right into it because what this podcast is in devotion to, that's what the convention is in devotion to, is articulating what it means to be independent That in a way that's not recapitulating or repurposing it for to create a new political identity, but actually to focus more on the capacities that are needed to be independent that you just mentioned. And one of the reasons that I respect you so much is that you revealed the, the hollowness of the mainstream narrative, which is in and of itself courageous and, and worth doing. But then in the aftermath of that, when the kind of counter narrative 
the people who wanted another story to believe in and wanted to lift you up as a representative of that new story, instead of taking that publicity and in, in, in selfishly leveraging it for your own writing career, you said, I'm actually not willing to do that either. I'm standing for a different thing. And so I'm, I would love to hear more about your process of what happened after the coronation and then what kind of self-reflection have you done and, and what have been the, the trade-offs that you've encountered that you mentioned that now you're not a trustworthy voice in the kind of hardline anti-vax crowd either. And so I'm curious what that's what that has been like for you personally, because I feel like there's an archetypal quality to it that anyone who's who's actually going to stand for independence is going to have to go through something similar to what you went through, because there is this seemingly insatiable human desire to find the good guys and the bad guys. And, and that moment of awakening of realizing, oh, maybe I've been lied to. It has to be followed by something other than creating a new bad guy. And so your process of, of doing that, I feel like would be instructive for people who might be on a similar journey. Yeah. Hero and villain, good guy and bad guy. That is the chief dramatic trope of our time. It is, and it plays out in every realm, including the political. It plays out in foreign policy where, where it's, you know, after the Cold War ended, America launched a desperate search for a bad guy in order that we could continue defining ourselves as good. First, it came up with the Colombian drug lords. That was the first big enemy. That was like in the early 90s. And then it was terror, Islamic terrorism, a clash of civilizations, the axis of evil. And now, once people became less terrified of terrorism, something else had to be done. And so then we manufactured a new set of enemies, China, Russia, which isn't to say that, see, here's the problem. I'm not saying, oh, all along, we're the bad guys and they're the good guys. I'm going to flip it around. That's exactly what I'm not saying. But when you are dependent on bad guys, in order to know yourself as the good guy, you will manufacture bad guys. You will look at the world through that lens. You will treat others with suspicion. You will not create the conditions that allow for peace. And that's exactly what our country has done. So you can look at foreign policy that way. You can look at healthcare that way. In fact, in our lifetimes, we have been in the midst of a horrific pandemic for decades. It's a pandemic of autoimmunity. It's a pandemic of obesity. It's a pandemic of depression. It's a pandemic of allergies. It's a pandemic of anxiety. It's a pandemic of addiction. What do all these have in common? It's that there's no external enemy that you can fight. It's, it's something that's within. Oh, I would add a pandemic to take it a little broader, a pandemic of domestic abuse, a pandemic of child abuse. like a pandemic of, of street violence. These are all internal conditions, things that we are doing to ourselves. That's uncomfortable because if you want to address that pandemic, you have to look within. You have to look within the person. You have to look within the body. You have to look within the society. There's not an external enemy to fight. So along comes 
SARS-CoV-2, and we're like, ah, here's an external enemy to fight. That fits the story. And, and so what was objectively not actually, by historical standards, not really that severe a plague. The average age of the person, of the, of the people who died was like 80 or something like that. Like it, just as an, and I, mean, I don't need to make this case, right? But, but we treated it as if it were because it fit the story. Yeah. So in my activism around the issue, I'll come out and say it right now with, without shame that I am at this point anti-vax. I know that's used as a pejorative slur at this point, but I've been highly skeptical of vaccines, not just the mRNA vaccines, my whole life. Does that make me the bad guy now? Probably half the people listening, that will already torpedo my credibility. And I've just defined myself apparently as being on another side. Therefore, good will come through the conquest of evil, which is what I've identified myself as by being on the other side. That's this organizing template for seeing the world, which makes us dependent on that. So I would like to invite the people who are appalled that I am a inveterate vaccine skeptic and the people who are gratified that I am an inveterate vaccine skeptic to put down that lens of he must not be credible anymore or he must be like, put down that lens because that's not, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm not here to make a case for that. So anyway, that was actually, that was a little digression. I, when I, when I saw what was happening with the totalitarian policies that were underway, justified, see, and that's the thing, like totalitarianism, fascism always requires evil as a concept to fight, to create the, because evil is the other. So it always requires an external enemy in order to unify the fascistic us. There has to be a them. And the external enemy then is mirrored by an internal enemy, which is the calm simps, the, the traitors, the internal heretics, the fifth column. That's how it always works. And I saw this happening. And so I called it out. And all of a sudden, because I basically risked my career, in fact, I was widely denounced and canceled and all of like my, my, most of my audience, because I had been very active in environmental issues, economic issues, like most of my audience was probably would have described themselves as progressive. And all of a sudden I uh, violated science and which is also part of the progressive identity. And uh, I was disinvited from programs, other teachers on programs said, I don't want to be on this if Eisenstein is on this. I cannot be associated with him. And, and so like these mob dynamics formed. And so I was cast out of the ranks of the sanctified brethren and the, 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 the team good. I was no longer on team good. And I was welcomed by team evil, which also thinks of themselves as team good. And so at that point, 
I had an instinct for how I could resuscitate my career simply by switching audiences and being a partisan for that side. And what I saw is I, I, I immediately recognized that nothing is going to change if I do that. And that that wasn't really true to me because both sides are operating on some of the same meta stories, some of the same myths. For example, the one that we've just been talking about, that the way to make a better world is to conquer evil, that the cause of our horrific situation as a species is that there are deliberately evil people who are doing it to us. There's an enemy. There must be a virus. We're sick as a society. So where's the virus? Where's the thing that we can kill? Maybe it's the human trafficking elite, the, the pedophilia elite, the, the satanic cabal, and so on and so forth. Now, again, I'm not saying right now that there isn't one. I'm saying, let's be wary of our tendency to leap to that conclusion based on a programming, a programming of the plot line of good versus evil, which is actually a plot line. Someone's doing it to me. There's someone to blame. Think about that. That is a victim mentality. You're always looking for somebody else to blame for your situation. What about becoming independent of that? Like that is a childlike dependency. Find some, find the person who's doing it to me. Like I'm not the master of my own life. Someone's always doing it to me. And again, I'm not saying that these conspiracies don't exist. I'm just saying, and in fact, I, I actually accept that certain major events were not as we've been told, okay? Starting with the JFK assassination onward through 9-11 and so forth. There's, there, there are machinations of power that are invisible through the lens of mainstream media and consensus reality. However, that diagnosis is not only coming from uh, objective data. It's also a psychology that's not healthy. And it tends to confer more power on the so-called powerful than they actually have. And when we do that, we become disempowered. Because after all, what's, what, how can we change the world when there are these huge powers? That, so why, why should I start an eco-village? It'll just get destroyed. Why should I start some, some project? Why should I, like, it, it, there's a disempowerment there that is, it's a very toxic kind of dependency. I hope I'm not getting like too philosophical and abstract here, but, but I don't know. That's what I do. What I'm struck by and what you just shared is the, the challenge of holding these things simultaneously. I think it was in a con your conversation with Zach Bush on Aubrey Marcus, where you were talking about JFK and the kind of national dissociation that happened when it was clear that the official narrative was not what actually happened, but psychologically people had to accept that narrative because the alternative was so gruesome and mysterious and unknowable 
that we're more inclined to accept a narrative that on one level we know is not true because it, it fills the gap of, of understanding, but that it creates a, in accepting it that reality that we, together. Yeah. yeah. But there, yeah. these little fragments, I feel like you traced it back to that moment where that, that was a pivotal breaking point for the mainstream narrative and people's belief in its fundamental truth. And that that fragmentation has just continued to worsen over time. And so there's this need for a reckoning of telling the truth, but there's also this tremendous trap of in telling that truth, then creating this evil cabal that is actually disempowering to us. And like I followed QAnon very closely because I was very fascinated about what was actually happening there. I wasn't participating in it, but I, I saw that there was some cultural movement happening there that I needed to pay attention to. And when it became, when the solution became yes. Donald Trump rooting out the underground tunnels of child trafficking, I was like, okay, this is not, th this is an, just another matrix. This is, it's like that moment in, in the matrix films when Neo realizes actually even the real world is a matrix. And so, yeah, how do we, how do yes. we relate to that? Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting how how mythic themes crop up so readily in these narratives. For example, the Q, QAnon narrative. Think about it, like tunnels. It's like there are these tunnels with monsters in them. And I'm not saying that to ridicule the idea. I'm just pointing out the psychological dimension. That's the kind of thing you would encounter in a dream. And you'd take it to your Jungian analyst and he would have a field day with it. These these even Donald Trump himself is very much like the avatar of an of an archetype, the archetype of the the fool, the Trump. And that's what a Trump is, actually. In a deck of cards, it's a jester. It's the jester. It's the the troublemaker. Yeah, I'll take it back to Kennedy again. Actually, what happened there? It was actually like the death blow of our civilization. It, the, the impact of that event was more than, it's like when, when a, a young child is abused and they dissociate, like they do not have the emotional wherewithal to fully experience what, what has happened. That trauma, then they, they sequester that trauma off so that maybe it can be healed decades later. That's kind of what happened. Like we, the, the, the impact of that event was more than we could take. It, it didn't fit into people's reality. So they basically accepted what on some level they knew to be a lie. That creates a irresolvable tension. You cannot be whole when you are accepting something that you know to be a lie, like you're in pretense. And that tension has been ripping us apart ever since. The healing, if there were real disclosure around that, the healing would be tremendous. Enormous amounts of energy would be liberated. So that lie and the acceptance of that lie has set the template for more and more and more lies, more and more and more dissociation, and the fragmenting of the body politic. There's this idea, though, that someday the truth will be revealed. 
And this is another mythic archetype. It's called disclosure. Let's say capital D. Mm -hmm. And that finally proves that you were right all along. But what if, what if, I don't know, Jesus came down from the sky and said, okay, your prayers have been heard for the world to heal. And I'm going to do it. But there's a price you have to pay. There's a condition that I have, which is that you will never be remembered by history as having been right all along. The people who are administering the world-destroying machine will get off scot-free. They will never be brought to justice. They will never be punished. But everything is going to change. Peace and healing will reign on earth. But you will never get vengeance. You will never get vindication. You will never be, you'll never win except for that, except that the world will heal. Do you take this offer? If there's any part of us that will not accept that offer, then we know that we are serving something else besides the healing of the world. Now, again, I'm not saying that people should not be held to account. I'm not saying that the abusers should remain in power, the people that have betrayed public trust. I don't think that. All I'm saying is, what do we serve first? What is our God? When the moment comes between vengeance and healing, between vindication and peace, what do we choose? This happens in our relationships all the time. You know the saying, would you rather be happy or would you rather be right? Same thing. So this political transformation that we are serving is not only political. It's the political enactment of a general principle that we've been practicing and learning about and workshopping in our relational sphere. All of these levels are connected. And in and, and some sense, we all know this, that the political revolution is also a, a, a spiritual revolution, a, a psychological revolution, a relational revolution. It's happening on all levels at once, because obviously, like on some level, our politics is a manifestation of our consciousness. What's going on today is that our consciousness is, is shifting and our politics is no longer in alignment with it. And our defining mythologies, such as us versus them, such as control, and there's other ones too that we haven't talked about. The cult of quantity is another one I, I talk about a lot. These myths are also no longer in alignment with who are, we are becoming. And so here's another dimension of independence, to become independent of those myths that had ha inhabited our consciousness. It, it gets so real at the level of, of my own lived experience. I can point to moments in my life where I had that choice. And in those moments, in some of them, I was actually aware. I was like, oh, this is actually the thing that's happening on the macro is happening right now inside of me. And I have a choice of how I want to respond to this. Do I want to be right? Do I want to use that rightness as a weapon? And I didn't succeed in all of those moments, but I've made it a practice bring at least enough awareness into those very personal moments 
say, actually, I'm going to take a stand through my own lived experience for a different culture where we're not weaponizing our rightness. There's actually something greater that is served by the, the healing. And the most challenging part of it is that fear that if I let go of being right, I will be dominated. That will be taken for weakness and it will be used against me. And I don't know if that's true for the whole, but because things seem to be all interconnected, it seems like that's at the core of humanity's unwillingness to let go of rightness. If I don't fight for being right, then someone else will try to dominate me with their rightness. And so it's almost like I've seen visions of like world peace is something that would have to happen through like a simultaneous letting go of dominance itself and a new locus of power that's more pluralistic and more honoring of the agency and the sovereignty of every living being, not just humans. And that that starts at the level of the individual. Hmm. Is there anything you want to say more about that? Sometimes that fear is, is fully justified. People, when we live in a, in a, in a vengeance oriented society, then if you admit that you were wrong, like you go to jail, there's, there's, there's actual consequences. So you fight until the bitter end. Look what's happening with Anthony Fauci and, and the CDC. And they've been the, all the health authorities, they were grievously wrong. And on some level, I think they know it now, or they're starting to, but, but that knowledge could be quite unconscious. People have a defense mechanism against being wrong. They, they shut out and filter out all of the contradictory data and, and op are only receptive to confirmatory data. Everybody does this confirmation bias. So the, the, so we have to understand that opinions, the, the expression of opinions is a fundamental way to establish group identity. It's like a display of the appropriate uh, symbols. Like you, when you, when you put a Ukrainian flag on your social media profile, you're saying, I'm a good person. I'm an acceptable person. What does good actually mean? It means, like, if you trace it back historically, it means that you share the morals of the in-group. You perform the required rituals. You abide by the appropriate, by the taboos. You wear the clothes like you belong. That's a good person, an acceptable person. And if you do not enact all of those behaviors, very bad things can happen to you. You can get ritually murdered in ancient societies, like these these sacrificial societies, which was all over the all over the globe. The pattern of finding a dehumanized subclass and sacrificing them in order to maintain social harmony that was everywhere. I wrote this is a lot of what I was writing about in 2021. So it's like we have like this this primal instinct to make sure that we belong to the in group. That keeps us safe. So this is another one of the meta programs that is actually, it actually makes us really vulnerable to manipulation. When, when a bully or an authority points to somebody and says, they're the bad one, then 
Nobody wants to be associated with that. Nobody wants to be QAnon, a right-winger, an anti-vaxxer, an extremist, an anti-science, an anti-masker, et cetera, et cetera. So if you've been if you've been creating these identities, these systems of, of identity and belonging, it's going to be pretty hard to let go of those, even if you are starting to suspect that maybe you were wrong. Like it takes actually a lot of courage to in, in our current society to admit that you were wrong. And, and that's, so then we can think, okay, if this world is going to get better, an awful lot of people are going to have to change their beliefs. They're going to have to, even if they don't have to publicly admit that they were wrong, they're going to have to admit to themselves that they were wrong. They're going to have to move on. So how do we create conditions for that to happen? Right now we have conditions that make it very hard to admit that because you get shamed. Like your, your very identity and your safety is built around having been right. That's why I love any, any, any story where, where people do admit that they were wrong, where there's some kind of redemption, where the consequence of having been, of, of having been a perpetrator of evil, the consequence isn't that you eventually get punished. That's the plot of most movies, that, that the bad guy, at least most action movies, the bad guy ends up getting punished Good prevails. The problem is solved because the Joker has been killed, or whatever Thanos, or whatever the bad guy is. Like that's the solution to the problem. Not a very realistic. If you really believe that the power elite are as powerful as the conspiracy theories say that they are, then that recipe for changing the world is a recipe for despair. But what about other ways of changing the world that don't depend on overcoming one force with another? If you accept that there are other causal principles at work, such as synchronicity, such as the change of heart, redemption, then the situation isn't so hopeless. But for those to be active, you have to stand within them. You have to be able to look at your enemy, and this could, could you can pull on, on Christian teachings here. You have to be able to look on your enemy and see something else beyond their evil. See a possibility beyond the category of enemy that you've put them in. Because when you see that possibility, when you see something else in them, when you see their divinity, then you're able to speak to that part of them. You're able to invoke that. You're able to relate to that and create a, a, a choice point for them. It doesn't guarantee that they're going to change, but at least it offers that opportunity. You're not locking them into who you think that they were. Like let's now expand this to the political realm where both sides think that they know who the other side is. And it has been intensifying over the years where like this, this negative dehumanizing view of the opponents. Now it's the point where the other side are, are deplorables or a threat to democracy itself, or like the, the rhetoric has just been getting worse and worse and worse. And we're not, and then people like, I was just in Kansas 
interacting with with people who the progressive urban elites would think are just horrible people. And they're like not only like kind and open-hearted, but also going through the same kind of spiritual awakening that is happening all over the place. Can we make space for that? Can we make the sacrifice to our own identity that is necessary to actually not as an ideology, but actually for real to hold our opponents, to hold the people we disagree with in their divinity? That's because that is the truth. That's the truth. The dehumanization isn't the truth. We're missing something when we judge another person. The key to our political healing is nothing less than that. This reminds me of my relationship with Christopher Life, who is the executive director of the Independent National Union and is co-hosting the convention. Because archetypally, you don't really get more straight white man than Christopher. He is a kind of archetypal stand-in for that archetype. And every time I have projected my own victimization onto him, oh, you're being oppressive or you're being whatever, what I've eventually come to realize is that it is so much more complex than that. And in terms of healing racism, healing all of these deep core wounds, I, I think what I'm hearing you point to is realizing that there, we're actually talking about systems of trauma. And as long as we make the straight white man the new enemy, we're actually reproducing some of the same cycles of violence. And that when we can realize, and this is what I've, I've experienced talking to straight white men, is that actually there's a tremendous amount of, of trauma that's informing even the, the behaviors that are perceived as toxic and evil and wrong. Those are actually coming from childhood traumas, abusive fathers, learned behaviors, where it's actually impossible to put the blame on an individual. We're actually all interconnected in this system of trauma that we can look at from a binary lens of, of us and them. But then when you can see how it's actually all just co-arising from evolutionary history, as well as more yeah. contemporary social phenomena, I've tried to trace it back. Like, where does it start? It's like the fall. The There's a moment when that break happened that could be so incredibly ancient that we've just been seeing the second and third order effects of a rupture that had to do with the ice age. This could be epigenetic memory of fragmentation and separation that lives inside of us at that deep of a level. So, yeah, that clearly brought something up for you. Yeah. So Benjamin, I, 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 like, I could talk about that historical and metaphysical origin, but I would rather actually right now apply it to current politics. Great. And first to say, say that that judgment and dehumanization are the key enabling mindsets of racism and slavery and misogyny and homophobia and all of the other ways that that people who do not conform to mainstream norms and skin colors and religions and so forth are are exploited and dehumanized and enslaved like that. That is a key enabling condition. Once you've reduced somebody to less than a human being, then you can, in good conscience, enslave them. Once you've reduced them to less than a human being, you can, in good conscience, exploit them. 
uh, or rape them or because they're not you're not doing it to a full human like myself I'm doing it to a lesser thing okay that tactic of dehumanizing reducing even to nature like when we hold nature as something less than sacred a forest is less than sacred then it's a lot easier to cut the thing down and pave it over the healing of that it's tempting to turn that very powerful tactic against the former oppressors to dehumanize the the white man and you might win a victory against the white man that way but what you will have done is you will have perpetuated the template of racism, the template of oppression. And it will just have found new victims. That isn't really much of a victory, is it? To switch the role of victim and oppressor. That's not the kind of revolution that we're pursuing. Oh. To make that obvious, you could, we need look no further than the state of Israel and the inversion of that power dynamic and the, the way that the state of Israel has taken on a dominant role over the Palestinians. It's like just the same cycle repeating it. And the other thing about, about judgment and dehumanization is it prevents you from seeing reality because you are in a delusion. So like to take some current issues, like say immigration, the, the, the right tends to dehumanize the immigrants. See that in these cherry-picked headlines of such and such illegal alien commits such and such a crime, he was one of the gotaways, et cetera, et cetera. And they're violating our laws you know, and they're coming into our country. Okay, why are they coming? Do you really ask that in, in light of, I'm looking at a divine being here. I'm looking at a human being just like myself. Why, what does it take for you to take a perilous journey leaving family behind, leaving community behind. You have no guarantee you're even going to make it. Like, how desperate do you have to become before you do that? How impoverished, how destitute, how frightened, how oppressed? And what is the origin of these conditions? How do they involve ourselves? Could it have anything to do with neoliberal austerity policies, corporate globalism, yeah, yeah. the series of coups and, and invasions that this country has perpetrated upon the other ones that make life miserable there. Of course you get immigration. Like that, once you start asking those questions, which lie on the other side of, of easy judgment, then things get confusing. Then you don't know what to do anymore. It is really uncomfortable to not know what to do. But that is what, that is the next step after the release of judgment. It is not knowing what to do. And until we become comfortable with that, I would love, I would vote for any politician who got up there and said, healthcare, gosh, I really don't know what to do. Inflation, God, I don't know what to do about that either. If he actually was honest about not knowing what to do, at least I know that they're not going to reflexively perpetrate policies that, that perpetuate the status quo. You know, that, that, that would be a refreshing politician who actually admitted to not knowing what to do. It's been hard for me to, to not see the boogeyman in all of this, because when I've done that similar thought experiment with all of these political issues, it seems like there are 
some solutions that we have, they're not one size fits all and they exist though, like with healthcare, why is our debate about whether or not we should have a national healthcare system or a private healthcare system when what it, what health actually is wouldn't potentially be served by either of those things. Yes, maybe some people would have access to life-saving pharmaceuticals that they wouldn't have, that because of their financial circumstance in their current healthcare system, they, they don't have access to. Maybe that, that would be an incremental shift. But what health actually is, is not answered by popping a pill. It has to do with our soil. It has to do with our how we are in our bodies. It has to do with not just the food that we eat, but the air that we breathe and the, all of the toxins that are in our environment. And it's like, when are we going to have the mature political conversation about that instead of just arguing about, should we have yeah. a national healthcare system or not? Right. So this is one reason why I don't directly engage a lot of political issues, because the frame of the debate already assumes things that need to be questioned. And you're giving a perfect example there. Yeah. If our current paradigms of health are the best that we could do, that, and they are true and they are effective, then the important conversation to have is about access to them. But that's taking for granted a lot that isn't true. And when, as I mean, I've spent decades in the realms of alternative holistic health, and I know that the entire system is based on false premises. And I don't want to reinforce those premises by engaging in the conversation just about access. Another example would be, I don't know, like in around climate change. That's another big one. Yeah. Where one side says carbon emissions are imperiling the future of humanity and life on Earth. And the other side says, no, carbon emissions aren't a threat at all. Therefore, there is no peril. Whereas I think that, and I, mean, I wrote a book on this, I think that the greatest parallel, peril, peril it comes from the destruction of soil, forests, wetlands, uh, insects through through pesticides, like through ecosystem destruction, which damages the organs of the living being called Earth. And that if we keep doing that, it doesn't matter how much carbon we're emitting. And the solutions then depend on healing land, healing forests, healing soil and the human beings who live on them and relate to them, water, healing the waters. Like, and a lot of that is, is, is anyway, like there's, that, so that's another example, but abortion too. You must take all the hot button issues. The, the us versus them obsession and the, the vehemence of these, these conflicting positions obscures some basic truths that pretty much like actually everybody or almost everybody is both pro-life and pro-choice. No one wants to see you know, adorable little fetuses dying. Nobody wants to force women to have babies that they don't want to have. What if we accept this broad consensus and, and start from there? Do I know what to do about it? given our current legal system and, and so forth? No, I don't. But we could start with this broad agreement 
this broad moral agreement. Yeah, I was just saying, we, we, so we had a technical glitch and now we're restarting on Zoom and I was just sharing how quickly I go to the CIA dropped us out of our flow and you you, you were going to respond to that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Something's interfering, you know, could be like the, the CIA who's monitoring us and dislikes this conversation or it could be some other unfriendly spiritual powers, you know, who are getting in our way. Like that, that's kind of what I was talking about, like that. If there's something going wrong, there's somebody to blame and therefore somebody to appeal to, to fix it. Either the ones, you know, the authorities, maybe they'll relent or I can appeal to some other authority who can go in and, and overpower the bad authorities. Like all of this, it's, it's, it's very, it's a very immature psychology that like hasn't come into an adulthood or a maturity that, that says, no, this is my playground. I can shape the world. I have the sovereignty and the authority to do that. There's a comfort in being able to blame things on everybody else. So that, and, you know, one way that that can manifest is in, I would say conspiracy theories, but I'm not really saying conspiracy theories, because I myself believe that there are conspiracies operating, but in like the capital C conspiracy theory, the myth. And again, myth doesn't mean false. It means bigger than life. The myth that a hidden hand, malevolent hidden hand is controlling everything, that all events are being orchestrated by this power. It doesn't leave a lot of room for emergence, does it? For chaos, for organic life, for the, and it makes sense in the context if you believe in a mechanistic universe that doesn't have order and intelligence and purpose inherently, but that needs to have these things imposed from the outside onto a dead world of generic building blocks, then it makes sense that if things are going wrong all over, then someone must be orchestrating it. If things are going toward a certain conclusion that, that either that we love or we hate, then somebody must be doing that. There must be a plan and operation. If we are heading toward to totalitarian, like technological totalitarianism, then that must be somebody's master plan. Like that intuition is profoundly disempowering, actually. And it's, and it's misleading because we're always looking for the master planners and not looking to our own capacity to shape the world. It's occurring to me that maybe that is like the mother of all conspiracies is that there actually is someone to blame. And in the, the piece that one of the pieces you just wrote about there's no one driving the bus. What you point to, which I think is really necessary for this kind of movement building, is the way that each person inside of each of these institutions, even Anthony Fauci, even Joe Biden, even Donald Trump, interior to their worldview, believe that they are the good guys. Yeah. And so the, the Occupy Wall Street slogan, we are the 99%, was like 1% off. Mm -hmm. And in that, it missed the whole thing because 
to dehumanize even that 1% is to not realize that we're all actually just enacting the stories and the worldviews that we inherited. And so there is no bad guy. And that the myth, what makes that the mother of all conspiracies is that it reproduces itself. And when we can pop out and have this kind of mature adult independent conversation about these things that's not coming from that place, then the solutions are almost self-evident. It's not quite though, that's not quite it. It's not that there are no bad guys. Like there are highly psychopathic, ruthless, manipul manipulative people in positions of power. Really what I'm saying is that that is not the ultimate explanation for things. And, and there are situations actually where removing a bad guy is the solution to the problem. It's not never the solution, but when it becomes a habit of solution, when it becomes our organizing template for understanding all the things that are happening in the world, then it, it, then it is disempowering and misleading. Yeah. Yeah. When I imagine the next Occupy, when I think about the what we're calling the United Independent Movement, like what what is the goal of that movement? What are people aspiring towards? And the feeling that I have of, of it is is not about protest, although maybe there, as like you said, there are people who should be removed from office because they're so entrenched in their own ulterior motives that they can't be trusted. Yeah. But it's just not the final of, solution. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and what that solution is emerging as to me is a fully participatory communal arrival into maturity where we take the responsibility for our communities directly into our personal sense of purpose. And then from there, we just get to create the community gardens and the peer health programs and the the kind of holistic mental health services that our communities need and we can actually just get to work doing the things that produce vitality and that there's a feeling of celebration in that because mm -hmm. we're coming home to each other and we're in a, a, a more creative orientation because we're not fighting against the other we're actually standing for what we want to see more of in the world yeah and, and once people accept that they're not victims of the system, and to some extent we are victims of the system, okay? But when we don't stand in that, an awful lot becomes available. You know, I mean, what, there's nothing stopping us except us from taking over county planning commissions, zoning boards, borough councils, school boards. I mean, there are a lot of local offices that no one even runs for. And, and when your eco-village runs up against opposition from the zoning board and the county planning commission, you know, the, the, the new consciousness of regeneration and, and earth healing and social healing has been caged with bars of our own making. Like we could, once, once we accept that there's no one driving the bus, it's like, hey, I'll step into that driver's seat. You said something in that piece about that even the steering wheel on the driver on the bus is just for show. Yeah. And 
you can't even actually steer it in that linear of a fashion because it's actually this kind of collective dream that's all of the individual choices interacting with each other and what we perceive as as order is actually like the emergent synthesis of all of these agents coming together and so it's the driver's seat almost it, there is the right. not to get too woo but jose argulas who repopularized mayan astrology he had this notion that when all of humanity was operating as a unified organism the earth itself would transform from spaceship earth into timeship earth because there would actually be a way for us to navigate collectively what timelines do we want to experience and that the earth itself instead of just moving through this the seemingly one track through space is actually moving through multi-dimensional right. universe i don't want to get too <laughs> metaphysical here but it's <laughs> almost like once we all step into that responsibility of choice then the kind of collective dream of humanity becomes the thing that we're all participating in together. And then the whole earth becomes a kind of organism that has its own will. And instead of that will kind of moving against itself and contradicting itself and hurting itself actually can come into a kind of unified orientation of at least some general direction of moving towards more vitality or moving towards more quality of lived experience or that to me is the north star that I, I think is where the collective dream wants to go once yeah. we realize that actually we all have that choice right 99 percent of human effort is incinerated fighting each other in opposing each other in various ways and if we could liberate that there's almost no limit on how we could transform this planet and and heal this planet and create realms of life and beauty that are just unimaginable to us today. Politicians, when I've had interactions with people in power, haven't been that many times, but I've had a few. My sense is that they do not feel like they have a lot of power. They have the power to administer their role and function to carry out their job description. And so it might look like they have a lot of power, but as soon as they deviate from that, the system squeezes them right out. So they don't actually have a lot of power. They, and, and, and if they want to exercise true power by deviating from the job description, from the box, from the systemically defined role, they need courage, they need canniness, you know, it's, it's, and, and it's kind of just like everybody else. So that's what I'm talking about when I say, you know, what's actually driving the bus is the collective shouts and movements and actions of all of the passengers. So what you're like to take it back to that metaphysical level, one of the, the deeper myths and assumptions that is paralyzing, that is, that is disempowering, is you might say the inert objectivity of reality. The idea that reality is a given it's, and, and that, that who somebody is, is independent of who I am. So if I write somebody off, that's what I'm saying. I'm cutting myself out of the equation. If I say, you know, Bill Gates is just evil. Anthony Fauci is just evil, irredeemable. 
um, standing in a reality and even issuing a prayer that that may be so. I'm cutting off any possibility of stepping into a different timeline in which redemption, in which forgiveness, in which a change of heart can happen. It is powerful to stand in a story of, no, actually, I know that on some level, you don't want this world either. I know that, um, that your heart is troubled. I know that you are not here for this. And, I, and if I'm able to see that in somebody, not as like an ideology of my, my spiritual ideology, but if I'm actually looking for that and I can see the, the humanity and the aspiration and the divinity of that person, I'm able to issue a very powerful call for them to step into that. It reminds me, you know, like the people we write off, you know, I, I, I used to tell a story, I'll tell it now. I, I, I knew a, a woman, an Afghan woman, Sakina, her name was, who was just like utterly fearless. She was engaged in women's education, girls' education in Afghanistan, which, you know, like we get her very credible death threats all the time. Death threats for people who actually kill people, you know, because it was goes against the fund, Islamic fundamentalist tenets there that, that deny education to girls. But she was doing it anyway, you know, and making all kinds of trouble. And one day her... She's in her car, pulling out of her neighborhood. She's got her driver, her staff, two staff members, and an unarmed bodyguard. They, they pull out, and there's a temporary roadblock. Blocking, them, blocking their way with 20 or 30 fundamentalist men with fundamentalist beards and fundamentalist attire pointing AK-47s at the car. And they shout, tell Sakina to get out. And the driver says, oh, you've got the wrong car. You know, rolls down the window. You've got the wrong car. She's not in here. And they're like, no, we've been watching her. We know she's in here. Tell her to get out. We want her. Sakina gets out, slams the door, marches right up to them. And everybody's in the car watching this scene unfold. And they're talking. 15 minutes, half an hour. They're talking. Eventually, Sakina gets back in the car. The roadblock is pushed aside and they drive off. And the whole time, like her staff members, and I mean, they're like, you know, in terror. They think they're all going to get killed. And they're like, what happened? It turns out that the young men, the young fundamentalist men, in the course of the conversation, decided that they wanted to be educated too, just like the girls. And that they were going to start a program and meet outside a certain mosque next week to begin, you know, their program. And after that, many of them became educators themselves. So, you know, I thought a lot about that story. It really affected me deeply because that is a kind of power that conventional deterministic force-based thinking cannot understand, does not recognize. What was that power? It's that even when guns were literally pointed at her face, she refused to believe what those guns were saying. She refused to see those men as irredeemable. She was so strong in her story that of course they would like to get educated. Of course they don't wanna be doing that, that she could hold it 
when guns are pointed at our face, hold it so strongly that they almost had no option but to step into that as well. That is independence. That is power. And if the world has any chance of a more beautiful future, that's the power that we have to learn to exercise. Without that, there is no hope. With that, nothing is impossible. That would be such a perfect place to end our conversation, but there, there's one piece that would feel like a thorn in my side if I didn't mention, because you brought it back to something that I was feeling just before the, our technical glitch that I wanted to mention, because especially because you and I, maybe through our own personal histories, have tended to be in connection with more of the kind of new age spiritual world. This isn't true for everyone, but in that community, when I say independence, a lot of people immediately go, no, interdependence. And my response there is basically what you just described, that until we have that full sovereign authority of speaking what we know to be true and our own connection to goodness and beauty, then true interdependence is just another form of groupthink, is just another form of identity and label. And, and so it seems like sequentially, it's like we need to mature, we need to complete that level of individuation to have that such a deep connection to our own personal authority that no amount of guns or external influence could even threaten the core of what we know to be true. And then there's something that comes after that, that is the, the kind of co-arising or mutuality of honoring each other in that. But it seems like the new age movement is, is still disconnected from that sense of personal power and, and the wholeness of the self that, that makes that kind of pluralistic society possible. Yeah, I don't like to get too hung up on words, you know. We could talk about independent of what, dependent on what. Right now we have an economic system that leaves us dependent on distant corporations, governments, markets, total strangers performing anonymous goods and services. And the The, 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 the transformation of that doesn't mean that we're all self, you know, we're, we're all, we all have a totally independent subsistence farm and don't need anybody else. You know, what I would like to see is the dependence to shift onto community, onto people who we love and who love us, onto people who know us well, like onto plants and animals and soil and water that are actually around us, okay? So that is a shift of dependence. Interdependence is just a fact. You know, Sakina's ability to hold that story draws on the uncelebrated individual choices that millions of people make to hold a generous story about somebody else, hold a true story about somebody else when they are assaulted by fear and judgment. Anytime you do that, you're generating amorphic field that makes it easier for the truly heroic acts to even take place. Sakina is drawing on that field. So that's interdependence. It's not something that we have to aspire to. It is something that is already true. 
So when we talk about independence, you know, yeah, let's not get too hung up on the words, you know, I mean, we could analyze it, but it can be a, a good marker for the recovery of a domain of choice that we have been oblivious to. We are coming more into an awareness of choices that had been automatic and unconscious. And, and to recover those is a very beautiful expression of what I would like to call independence. Beautiful. I feel satisfied. That was the one last piece that I felt like if we closed before getting that distinction, I, I would have felt like there was a gap, but I feel like we could keep talking for more hours, but I think this is a, I loved how focused in on independence you were and how the politics that you are articulating is such a match for the politics that I have been devoting my life to. And so that's part of where my, my, my love and respect for you comes from is I, I feel both inspired, called forth, and there's something in me that's affirmed by what you, the way that you communicate. It's, ah, yes, someone really gets this. And so I feel the allyship, I feel the partnership and I'm really glad you're going to be coming to the convention and bringing your gifts to contribute because yeah, people like you and Aubrey Marcus and Zach Bush and a whole suite of other people who are kind of rising through this movement context into political stewardship where, you know, each of you have kind of been in your own domains of leadership and, and to see that this is a kind of political movement that can host that kind of leadership. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to having you there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being there. It's got building up some good energy. Yeah. Yeah, there's an incredible group of people. The I'm going to publish a conversation with Chief Phil Lane. And mm -hmm. man, there we didn't even talk about prophecy and it, the psychology of prophecy. Sometimes I feel like prophecies are like stories that we tell ourselves to make an adjacent possible feel more possible so that we can create it. We don't have to go, this is a whole, that's a whole other rabbit hole we could get. Yeah, I have a lot to say about prophecy, but, but we'll save it for another time. Great. Yeah. Suffice to say, we're living in really important times, and I feel like this conversation is important. So thank you for, for having it with me. Yep. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Rise, the United Independent Podcast. This is your reminder that this is so much more than a podcast. Charles is going to be in Austin with us and he's going to be contributing with a really powerful message from stage that I don't think you're going to want to miss. So if you go to www.inc22.us, you can register for the live stream and get tickets to join us in Austin. As more and more people start coming in as speakers and as participants, the excitement that I'm feeling in my body for the historic nature of this event is 
just growing and growing. I can't say right now who some of those speakers are that just got confirmed, but I can tell you that we are in for a really epic gathering of people from all different backgrounds who are carrying that deep, heartfelt desire to rebirth democracy together. And so I really don't think you want to miss this. This is a, a really special event and opportunity to participate in our nation's history. So please go to www.inc22.us to get your tickets and come to Austin because something really special is happening. Thank you for being part of this movement. And thank you for sharing this episode with your friends and doing whatever is yours to do to make our world more beautiful. Thank you.